Welcome to your 2012 June edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next two months, we're going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So, let's get to it. All right, next up on VOE, we have Mike Staver, CSP, with the Staver Group. Now, uh, Mike, my understanding is you basically have been in coaching since before coaching was cool. Yeah, that's right. Back when uh, the day when coaching was uh, going to the principal's office, yeah. we managed to create a model that uh, helped people that were already successful. Because great, you know, great athletes, great actors, great performers have coaches, so that's what we did. And now we're really interested in coaching, just not today. <laughs> okay. Uh, today we want to talk about uh, something that you've done with your business. You've created a subscription community. You found a way to provide value to your online experience community in such a way that you can charge them for that. So there's some magical formula in there that we want you to unpack for us. So kind of start at the beginning here. What was your philosophy when you decided that you're going to kind of create your own community. We started talking about communities before communities were the cool thing. Now everyone's talking about them. But if you look back to the beginning of time, that's how everybody learned. They got together, they told stories, and there wasn't generally somebody standing in front of the cave with a flip chart and a PowerPoint saying, okay, I'm going to give you the three points to doing effective hunting. Ready? Go. <laughs> and so what we decided was perhaps what we should do is provide a place where we, people can learn and connect and share in a facilitated environment where should they want me to provide content, should they want me to push, I can. We must shift in our industry from a push mindset to an invitation mindset. And so I believe it's a distinction with a difference that we invite people to join the community and then we facilitate a space so that they can learn and connect with each other. And then occasionally we intervene, jump in, give an idea, facilitate a discussion. I wish my ego was big enough to believe I had enough information to keep them interested in paying me money every month. I think they pay to talk to each other, and I just create the space to do it. All right, so it's almost like you're creating the campfire around which they're gathering to exchange stories, information, ideas. That's a perfect metaphor. I think I'm actually going to use that, if you don't mind. Please. Sign this release form. (laughs) This is me. That's a great... You're absolutely right. I create the campfire for them, to, and I sit at the campfire with them, but I don't dominate the conversation and you know, say, oh, and by the way, have you seen my book? And oh, by the way, have you, you know, we just don't do it. You could be like the, the grizzled elder, you know, on the edge of the campfire. There you go. It's like, and what does, uh, you know, and what does the ancient wizard Mike Staver think? I like it. Wake him up and let's find out. <laughs> yeah, if you can, <laughs> if wake you him can. up. So you were, again, like you said, you were into community before, you know, groups. And now everyone's uh, referring to it as, you know, who's your tribe? Mm. And I've heard Alan Weiss say, well, I don't like, you know, tribe because it's tribalism, but community. So whether you use tribe or, or community, it's the idea that these are, these are your people because they're gathered around your core concept. There's something that you're contributing that they're digging and they're liking this idea and they want to talk and discuss and apply it. Right. And it's not just my stuff. I mean, I think this is very, very important. I think that when we organized our community, we organized it because we found that our clients were saying, well, what are your other clients saying? And what are your other people that you're coaching saying? And what are your other, you know, this and that doing? And I said, well, this is what they say. And then one day I went, well, why don't I just let you talk to each other? And really, to tell you the truth, I actually facilitated a phone call between two clients. I introduced them, told them what the other person does, and said, if you need me, I'm in my office call. Bye-bye. 
and they had a telephone conversation. So we just created it virtually. I, I think that that's a key thing that clients want to know what other clients are doing. Yeah. I remember once I was working for a training company and we just kind of had a showcase and it was a free showcase, you know, kind of infomercial type of thing. But we invited all sorts of local clients and prospects. And I remember uh, my client uh, coming up to me afterwards and she's saying, you know, Brian, I so appreciate these. And I said, well, why? She said, Brian, do you realize? She goes, you, you get to work with all these different companies. She goes, I go to the same meetings every day talking to the same people about the same topics every day. She goes, I am so sick of what they think. She said, so the opportunity to find peers or people in related industries, she goes, I get to hear what they think. And she says, you know what? It's different. She says, never underestimate the value of that. Completely true. I knew we were onto something when one of my, our communities divided into three levels. And at our C level for um, uh, senior executives, owners, or CEOs, one of my members said, at what point will you hand the community over to us and let us run it and invite you when you're needed? I said, uh, today? I thought it was such an f- amazing statement of the vision coming to fruition is that they saw the value of community and me as a contributor instead of it being all about me. And I think that's the future. I, I think this whole push and, and, and shove and sell and convince and my stuff's great and you should use it. I think, you know, I think they should use some of my stuff, but I think the power is in facilitating places where people can learn and connect with each other. We have a, we have a summit at, on Amelia Island as a result, only community members can come and, um, they go crazy for that. I really didn't really didn't think they'd come, but you know, our first one will be in October. It's sold out already. So, you should probably have another. I should, or expand the registration numbers. <laughs> exactly. It's perhaps. like go to the hotel. Hmm, yeah. Perhaps a bigger room block. <laughs> perhaps Just saying. larger or, room, or perhaps more money for fewer people because it's more exclusive. Ooh, yes. And speaking of money, for many speakers, this is truly a new concept. They're saying, oh, yeah, I've been hearing this, and this is just another iteration of them going, yeah, I really need to consider this. There's others who might be thinking, it's like, okay, Mike, um, you know, I, I've got a group going. I mean, I, I've got enough people who like my central ideas, and so now they're kind of taking it, they're kind of talking to each other almost, you know, it's kind of like beyond a Facebook, you know, group, but they're starting to get there, but they're thinking, that key adjective you used before community group, it was called subscription. Mm-hmm. That implies that uh, they're giving you money to be part of that. That's right. What's the journey on that? I'm a self-admitted fee anxiety person. I have always had to struggle in my life with assigning an amount of money to what I do. It's, if, it was, if I didn't have great people around me, I would probably do this for free and be living in a van down by the bridge with um, Chris Farley. Uh, <laughs> because... Uh, I always, always had trouble with that. And so we started out at uh, deciding we would do, we've been through probably 10 iterations, that we would do the base community for free. And then um, the two subsequent communities who are, by the way, our communities are leader-only communities. Not anyone mm-hmm. can join. And then we started assigning numbers to that, and we created a focus group and said, where's the line between when this does not feel like like you would notice if you were paying for this every month? We really developed what I somewhat flippantly consider a no notice fee where we said this is a this is amount of money you're not going to notice but you're going to notice the impact but you're not it's kind of like a gym membership you're not going to mm-hmm. really notice it so that's how we did it we kind of played with it and played with it and talked to our clients and said what's the no notice f- number and how interested are you and uh, and they were all crazy interested and then when we told them the fee um, they said it's great, but if we get in early, can we have it for less? If we're a charter, <laughs> so we develop. We a won't whole, notice after uh, you give yeah. us a discount. 
Right. So we developed a charter membership package, and that's how it all started. Has that fee, that mystery 27 drachmas, whatever it is, uh, has that, that fee been one that you've sustained, or have you increased or lowered it? Yeah, well, we're just coming up on a year launch on the community, and the, um, we have, we've kept the fee exactly where it was from the very beginning. Now, I will, I will say that some of the details and nuances of what we do, if we sell, and we do this often, long-term coaching packages into companies, uh, and they have large leadership groups, we will generally, in the proposal, build the community in as part of that. And then on our P&L and on our spreadsheets every month, we chunk out the fee or the mm-hmm. subscription. Sure. Yeah. So you deduct, in essence, the fee or the, the subscription amount from the fee. Right. So if, it, if you got paid 20 drachmas and two drachmas are the thing, you actually right. got 18 drachmas. Right. And that's how we really seeded the community. We didn't go out and try to fish with a pole because it was just too much of a nightmare. We went out and fished with a net. So we went to our big customers who were already, we were already coaching 20, 30, 40 of their people and said, we think this is a value. Interesting. Now, A, I want to acknowledge that you're Mr. Metaphor. I mean, I like that. So we didn't use a line, we used the net. <laughs> but in case, even though you're speaking slowly, in case this zipped by, I, I want to go to a technique that I think is very powerful that you just articulated, that you went to existing clients or clients that you get and you built in the community into what they got. So I imagine this is a way of quickly building a community. So when someone's thinking like, well, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to have a community of seven mm-hmm. or eight. Oh, look, nine. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but when you start getting, here's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100. If you're selling it as part of your services and you enroll people, obviously only a, f- a fraction, a certain percentage of them will actually participate because right. they didn't have to initiate it. But still, you've, you've bumped your numbers up to an acceptable level. So you kind of jump-started your community. Right. That's exactly what we did. We said what we need to do to be successful is seed it. And we need to get people in there that will participate. So we did two things. How do we get numbers? And then how do we get advocates, what I call an advocate? And so in, in the communities, I actually ask and invite two people in each community to be our advocates. So it's not me. Like, uh, they're like co-hosts of the community. And I have a person in my company who manages it. So I have a community manager. And this isn't expensive, by the way. I divide fees with my community manager. I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a percentage arrangement. And my advocate is a member of the community and does it because they believe in it. Now let's talk about what they actually do. I, you know, I'm part of a Yahoo group. Right. I'm part of a LinkedIn group. I'm part of a Facebook group. And they each have different advantages. But most of the groups you know, that, that I've been part of, okay, you, you post you know, comments or questions. People comment on those comments or questions. They're contributing. I can post a video, audio, pictures. Pretty much that's what we do in the online ex- ex- experience. So is that what your people are doing, or is it pretty much text-only uh, discussions? No, it's all of that. So when they, when they join, they actually get a spreadsheet brochure. It's on our, it's on our site, our, our normal state website, and it tells them what they get by community. So there is a certain amount of my stuff that gets loaded into the community every month. So there's a video, audio, my blog. Um, we do a webinar quarterly, that kind of thing. So that happens. That's what we call the structured or formal elements of the community. So you're, you're posting your you know, blog, your other type of stuff. So you're feeding, you're seeding it with material. Right. Every month. And, right. And it depends on the community. So the, the higher up in the hierarchy of the community, there's only three, but the, in the CEO group, they actually get 
more intensive personal access to me. And in the lesser groups, they get more audio, video, blog stuff from me. Everybody gets webinars, that kind of thing. So they get some formal content that's provided, which seeds it. Then they also can post their own video. They can post their own audios. They can post their own questions. They can do all the normal stuff that you just mentioned. Um, usually what we're finding is, is happening most in the senior community with the, the CEOs is that they are more problem focused. Like I have a challenge. Here's what I'm dealing with. My strategic team doesn't want to do this. What do you think? You're almost like an online Vistage group there. Exactly. That's exactly the idea. We looked at Vistage and said, could this be virtualized? Because what I, what I love about Vistage and what I think Vistage could probably do, it does a good job of, is they'll bring a speaker and provide content, but then we all talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. so we just made that basically virtual. Where I find there to be trouble, and this is my big mistake, is that we will seed it, we'll start a discussion, but if I don't stay in the game with them, it dies faster. And my hope was... I could seed it, they could talk about it, and then I could have the party and walk out of the room and the conversation would continue. And that does happen, but it tends to, to fade off. So all those things are possible. We, have, we screen everything that goes in with the exception of responses. So you can't just post a picture of your dog without our people. All right, so that's a good thing. So from, from a timing point of view, they post something. You have to approve it. Nothing gets automatically posted. Right. It goes through you. Right. And this is your person because, right. uh, and what would you call this role? The community manager. The community manager. So your community manager, it's their job every single day. See if there's a post, vet it, post it. Yeah, she gets dinged uh, in her inbox every time anyone posts anything. Ding isn't a good ding, right? No, no, no. She it's gets ping. pinged. Pinged. Yes. Pinged okay. or dinged. She gets dinged if she doesn't get pinged or when she doesn't, yeah. I think we got that. Okay, I think good. we're following what your <laughs> intent is for That's trying good. to communicate Thank that. You. All right. So for those who are thinking, Mike, this sounds fantastic. I need to do this. What counsel or advice would you have now that you've done it? Okay. And this is still relatively fresh for you. And yes. so you're still in the, I'm so glad I did this. Oh, I probably would have then maybe done that slightly different. So if you were to counsel someone or coach someone mm -hmm. and they're, they're starting this from scratch, what advice would you give them? First advice is don't hesitate and don't take long to get it off the ground. We adjust as we go. Just like a community, it's iterative. It changes. It's alive. It's, alive, it's dynamic. So do it. Don't spend too much time. Uh, second thing, find somebody who understands it. Don't think that just because you know technology or just because you know how to speak that you know what you're doing. Because a community only works if the machinery, not the software, if the if the way it's facilitated and seeded and fertilized works. And that takes an expert, in our opinion. Um, and the third thing that we didn't do that I think we um, should do uh, and still are working to do is figure out how to drive it better. We do not do as great a job as I think we could do at selling it and marketing it. And so I think I... Uh, if I get on the phone and talk about it, if I do a webinar and talk about it, people join. We have good sales and marketing efforts. We just don't have a person that owns it, loves it, sells it. That's the big dole. I should have had that person from the beginning. So if someone, say, is listening right now or knows them. someone, they should call Mike Staver That's right. for a huge salary. Gigantic. He's, he's not actually nodding at that part. Just wanted you to know. <laughs> yes. It's a huge fantasy. <laughs> 
Well, uh, Mike, I think I'm. it's time for me to identify my tribe and get cracking. Yes, it is. And I tell you, it is, I believe, and of course everyone says it, I think it's the future. I think the relevance of our industry will continue to shrink if we don't understand it's not about push, it's about invite. If we invite them and then provide a place for them to learn and connect, they'll do it. And then we, it takes the pressure off too. It, it's amazing how much less pressure I have to push and create and do more and all that kind of um, thing. Now I get to, oh, that's an interesting problem. That's an interesting challenge. And I get to share some of my own ideas. Much more casual. It's like sitting around the campfire and having a conversation. With you as the elder. With me as the, I think you said crotchety elder. Actually, I said grizzled. Oh, grizzled. That's true. But that's okay. We'll go with crotchety. <laughs> no, let's go with grizzled. I like that better. All right, here we are once again with Protecting the Biz with our favorite lawyer, Francine Ward. Francine is technically a business and intellectual property lawyer with a focus on copyrights, trademarks, publishing law, and social media legal issues. Francine, what topic are we covering today? Well, I think we'll talk about social media terms of use. Snoozer, snoozer, snoozer. That's a great topic. How could that be a great topic? In terms of use, like all the fine print that we don't read? Well, I would imagine that there are some things that you don't know that could really be getting you into trouble right about now. All right, we'll stick with it. All right, so terms of use. (laughs) So... Since we're talking about social media, I assume we're talking about things that we post, right, on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, all that kind of stuff, right? Yes. So what should we be scared about? I mean, now granted, I've, other than like the permissions thing, like on Facebook, which I've read that, I've read that because they're changing it constantly. But other than that, I've never read anything further than there's like pages of stuff. I doubt anyone else has, except for since you're looking at me, you have. (laughs) So what's in there that is gonna shock us? Well, let me say this first. Most people stop at the line where it says, you own all of your content. The average person loves to hear that. Facebook has told them that they own their content. Twitter tells us we own our content. Second Life, LinkedIn, everybody says you own your content. So it it does say that. And that's in the terms, absolutely. We're reading it right here. For example, in Facebook's terms of use, it says you own all of the content and information you post on Facebook. So what's what's the problem? But then there's a lot of fine print after that. Okay, that kind of negates that, or? Well, it could. Okay, you can keep reading. Okay, so then it continues to say, and you can control how it's shared through your privacy and application settings. That's all good. Yeah, it's all good. But then it says, in addition, and this is, I quote, for content that is covered by intellectual property rights like photos and videos, you specifically give us, meaning Facebook or Twitter, the following permission. Subject to, you know, your privacy rights. You grant us a non-exclusive, transferable, sub-licensable, royalty-free, worldwide license to use any IP content that you post on or in connection with Facebook. Okay, so in English, that means... That means you give them the right to do absolutely anything with your content, but not only do you give them the right, you give them the right to give someone else the right. So it says you give them the right to transfer as well as to sub-license okay, your content to but, someone else. But it, I thought it said right there, it said subject to your privacy setting. That's right. Thing. And if I don't like it or I'm concerned, I can always delete it. So, right? Isn't that good enough? No. And here, let me continue reading. Here's a little more information that I just think is 
quite telling. This IP license ends when you delete your IP content or account. Sure, I got that. So and I delete like it from Facebook or in my account. We want to think that. So we what's think the problem? delete equals delete. Yes. But then it continues to say, unless your content has been shared with others and they have not deleted it. So there's the clincher. Well, I mean, that's the whole, of course you shared it. You posted it to Facebook. Well, so, there you go. So if anybody forwarded it or liked it or any of that stuff, so what they're saying, it's never gone. It's never gone. It's like, you know, whatever you put into the internet stays in the internet. Delete does not equal delete. So this is the part where we go, are you bleep? <laughs> okay, so that's shocking. So the question is, what should we do? Because obviously you can't say, well, I'm going to post this, but I'm going to make a few deletions there, Facebook. I hope you don't mind. Well, you can't exactly argue with Mark Zuckerberg who's worth $12 billion right now. So since we can't change the terms, Francine, what do we do about that? I mean, are you saying don't post anything or what, what do we do? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, number one, be mindful of what you post. So if you post something that's very, very valuable to you, you might want to make sure you register it first. If it's content that can be protected by copyright, you might want to do a registration prior to uploading it. So at least you might have some leg to stand on in the event you have so to see someone. someone. someone else besides Facebook uses it, maybe you can see that. Possibly. 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 <laughs> Scary. So you're saying if it's something that it's so valuable to you... I wouldn't even put it up there. Don't post it under any circumstances. Yeah, I wouldn't even post it. Wow. Okay. The law is still so unsettled in this area, and it's an interesting area for, for a lot of lawyers because every time tech, every time the law comes up with something, technology jumps ahead of us. So we're always scrambling to keep up with technology, but it's great because there are lots of opportunities to learn and to grow and to... Yes, to it's, it's great to learn and to grow and collect <laughs> fees. If you're a lawyer, yes, that's awesome, yes. And for us, it's called frustrating and horrifying. But yes, okay, we've got that. Well, uh... Thanks again for another chipper episode of Protecting the Biz, which is called Surrender to Mark Zuckerberg. Welcome to another edition of Point Counterpoint. In this segment, we've got Kirsten Carey, CSP, versus Robert Bradford, CSP, the issue at hand, speak for free lots versus speak for free never. Let's listen in as they mix it up. I believe that free speaking is, there's a very specific place um, in speaking that you still need to do. Speaking for no fee is how I like to look at it, not necessarily free. Because there's some monies coming back to you somewhere, somehow. Um, when you're first starting out and it, you don't know, you've never been paid before, I mean, speak to anybody who will listen to you. But if you've been in the industry for a while, I still think there's a very specific place for it. If it's the correct audience, I absolutely would say yes to a speaking engagement that was no fee. Um, or if it was a new topic area or a new audience that I was trying to get into, I would absolutely utilize that audience and speak to them with, with no fee. I always looked at speaking, and this is going to shake a few people up a little bit. From the beginning of my career, what, 16, 17 years ago, I always saw speaking as the marketing side of selling the consulting that I had. So I saw it more as leverage. So to me, the speaking thing, when I got the first person who asked me, well, how much do you charge for the speaking part? And I'm like, wow, that's super cool. Let me figure that part out. Um, that started becoming another thought process for me. Oh, I can get paid for the speaking as well. So that was pretty awesome. Um, but as far as the no fee engagements, I still see a revenue stream coming from my company that's way bigger than what my speaking fees ever were. 
So I would do to very specific audiences, um, no fee engagements, but because I was making money back in the room, I was making money from the book sales, the consulting sales and everything else. So when you've got a very specific revenue stream on top of your speaking revenue, there's no reason I don't think to not take no fee engagements. I'd say, uh, you know, there, there's some really good ideas in what you're saying, Kirsten, but uh, th- there are two problems with speaking for free that really stick in my craw. And one of them is when you speak for free, at least in the mind of the person who's bringing you in, you are establishing your value in their head. And in that case, the value is zero. I don't ever like to work from a position where I'm starting with a value of zero, even in a situation where I might. And I have in the past done this. I might be willing to speak to a group for free that there are, you know, a thousand CEOs in the room and they're just my market and I know I'm going to get 10 other gigs out of it. I still want the person who's bringing me in to start with what my real value and what my fee is. And then we figure out how to get away from that. The second thing, and this to me is an important thing long term, your fee is a filter. And it is a filter that causes people to choose to work with you or not work with you. And, and it, it sort of says, you know what, there's a hurdle you have to get over. You have to want to hear me a lot in order to work with me. And if you don't have that filter in, you're going to get some inappropriate audiences. and You're going to waste your time with some audiences that somehow you talk yourself into thinking it's appropriate because you want to go to Key West in January or something like that. And you know what? That's, you know, that's not good for my career long term. I can make a lot of short term little mistakes that don't build up strategically for me. So I'd say speaking for free is a bit of an issue for me. And I, I hear what you're saying. And I think we're actually together on some of this because I wouldn't just start out saying, I'll speak for anybody who will take me. Um, there are audiences I would absolutely turn down and say, no, the, the no fee thing is not going to work. Because uh, I knew there were certain audiences that I couldn't sell certain products back in the room. I couldn't sell. So if it was a certain specific audience, like if it was uh, business owners and they hit my target audience, then I would consider a lower fee or a no fee engagement. But if it was corporate and it was just, you know, you'll get exposure. That's my favorite. You'll get exposure here. I'm like, I don't really need any more exposure that's not going to get me to where I need to be. So there was audiences I knew I wasn't going to be able to sell back in the room or that kind of thing, the, the speaking fee stayed where it was and it never dropped. So I think it has to be very strategic and I'm with you on the long-term planning thing. Is this going to be just a short thing, never going to get me anywhere else, the one night stand kind of thing, or is this going to be a long-term relationship? And that was a very specific thing that you have to consider. But I still think there's a very specific place for the no-fee engagement. Now, you have a couple of good reasons. Uh, you know, getting, getting spin-off work, back-of-the-room sales, even the exposure thing can be worth it. I have a little bit of a twist on speaking for free that I use, and I, I know you've, you've probably, we've talked about this before. When someone comes to me and says, hey, we normally get our speakers in for free, what I will say to them is, this is my fee. This is what I get, and it's what you're going to pay me. But here's the deal. It can end up being free, and in fact, you might even end up making some money off it in some deals. I say, if I speak in front of a room of 200 people and 50 of them are CEOs, I know, and this is from analyzing my own statistics, that I am going to book spin-off business with 15% of the people in the audience, okay? And I know that that average spin-off sale is worth X dollars to me. I will credit you 100% 
of the sales that I get spin off with your audience. And for example, just last month, I sent out a check for thousands of dollars to one of my clients that I spoke to uh, last summer because I spun off a lot of sales to uh, to their people. So, you know, when someone comes to you and says, oh, you're going to get a lot of exposure, or you'll get other business, or you meet people that'll be good for your business, that's a great counter that you say, you know what, you're absolutely right. And if what you are saying is true, I'm going to make money and you won't pay me a cent. And it's interesting, there was a, a, another formula that I used for me that worked really effectively, which I knew, just like you do, your numbers, your statistics, you have to know that stuff. I knew if I had at least 25 people in the room of a certain type of person, I could sell between uh, $10,000 and $15,000 the back of the room, not including the consulting, not including anything else. So I knew if I had that correct 25 people or more in the room, I was selling a whole bunch of money. That would have been higher than the speaking fee I would have had at that point anyway. So what I did is I, I came up with a sliding scale for my clients and I gave them incentive to get more of those specific types of people in the room. So what I would do is I'd set up, here's my speaking fee, X amount of dollars. If there's fewer than 25 people in the room, if there's 25 to 50 people in the room that fit that target audience, my, my fee would slide down. So then as they got closer to a number, they could actually get to zero, but their job had to get those people in the room. And it was really interesting because it changed their motivation for marketing the program, getting people in the room, getting the right people in the room. So it was really interesting because I had them essentially working for me um, and because they were working for something else. And it worked really nicely with a lot of nonprofits too because they could go back to their boards and they could say, look, we can get this woman in here. She's normally X amount of dollars. We can get her in for a lower amount or, or zero because we're doing something. So there was an exchange. It wasn't just, I'm dropping my fee for no reason. So that worked nicely for me because as I saw the number of correct people in the room go up, I knew the amount of money I could make was going to go up as well. So I think it's a, a similar concept where you're getting creative on the, how do I work with this audience? How do I get the right audience in there? And how do I make them do what I need them to do so I make the most amount of money long term. Yeah, so what you're saying is there's an, always an exchange going on. Absolutely. And you have to walk into the conversation about the gig with this idea that there are things that you can bring to the table and what you bring to the table is always worth a lot, but you have to make sure you establish that value up front and that you get just as much value out of the person who's hiring. Absolutely. We can't be the, you know, the stereotypical used car salesman like, well, will you buy the car for $10,000? Will you buy it for nine? Will you buy it for eight fifty? And it's it, that's when you're just dropping your fees for no reason, there's no gift exchange. It's not just the you're giving, you're giving, you're giving. You're giving, they're giving. There's a relationship there that works. It's not just I'm giving you all the value and you're, you're getting nothing. Um, you can't do it that way. So speak lots for no fee if you're a very new speaker and you're just getting into this industry and you need exposure getting on a platform and getting used to audiences and getting used to speaking. Uh, speak lots if it's a new speech because you don't want to try out a new speech on a good audience that you should be uh, charging lots of money for because they don't love it when you're trying out new material. Completely new topic, you've decided you want to completely revamp what's going on, it's a completely different shift for you, again, same thing. Speak to anybody who will listen to you that uh, and do it for nothing in the beginning just when you're getting it together. But, or speak for free if there's a very specific exchange that is going on where you are getting absolute value in exchange for being on, on um, in front of that audience for no fee. So um, I know Robert and I were just talking about, and I know I've done this, where there's a new area or a new country or some place you really want to go. If they're going to pay for everything for you to get there and you're working it into a vacation and it's only an hour of your time getting um, the speech together, then yeah, there's a very specific exchange. And you can look at that as money because it would have been money you would have spent otherwise. So unless there's a very specific value exchange, again, be very careful about the new, uh, I mean, the no fee. 
But for new speakers, new speeches, new topics, or very specific value exchange, I think the absolute no fee engagement is, is perfectly okay. Don't speak for free unless you have established your value with the person who's bringing you in. And that means that that person knows what your fee is and they know what you are giving them and they are willing to give you something in return. Don't speak for free unless you really understand how you get spin-off business from being in front of a particular kind of audience and have the numbers set so that you know what your expected sales out of that audience are going to be and that's worth your time speaking to them. Don't speak for free unless it's the right audience. And don't speak for free unless you really want to be there. For example, I'd love to go to Australia next year. I would, if somebody came to me and said, look, we're going to fly you and your partner out to Australia and you can have a great time, I might consider speaking for free for an audience like that. Australia, New Zealand would probably come in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> What's your speaker IQ? Yes, it's time to quickly quiz you on non-trivial trivia from the speaking, meeting, communications industry. This month, two targeted questions about color. Question one, true or false? In 2009, Psychological Science reported on research from sports psychologists. They showed 42 experienced Taekwondo referees video clips of bouts in which one contestant wore red and the other blue and asked them to call a winner. Then they showed the refs the same clips but digitally reversed the colors that each contestant wore. So, true or false, in close matches, the scoring also reversed to the extent that the red competitors won 13% more often than they did previously. And the answer is true. That's right. Question two, fill in the blank. Also in 2009, the Journal of Sports Sciences reported on research from British sports psychologists. They analyzed 56 soccer seasons and found that on average, teams whose primary uniform color was blank won more home games and finished higher in the league than any other color. And your answer is... Well, if you said blue, you'd be wrong. It's red. That's right. Guess it's time for me to buy a red suit and hope I don't look like Santa or Satan. All right, here we are talking with Connie Podesta, CSPCPAE, and today we're going to be talking about growing our biz or just really doing what we need to do to have a business uh, here. As you may or may not know, uh, Connie is an organizational therapist. Basically, she does with companies what other therapists would do with a family for rather slightly higher compensation. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, Connie, I know that speakers all the time have gone, Connie, Connie, can you help me understand why my business is sucking so badly? Right, right. You know, when I'm, when I'm coaching a speaker, I always say to them, give me the first line of your presentation and they always you know tell me what they say on stage you know mm -hmm. they walk on stage and i always say but is that where your presentation starts well what do you mean and i said for me the presentation starts way way earlier than the moment i walk on stage that's the end of my presentation the presentation for me starts the moment i'm on the phone with either the meeting planner or the person that's ready to hire me that's where the presentation begins this is the aha moment where they're going Ooh. oh good well, i hope so i hope so because I think there's three key components to a good speaking. You have to be an extraordinarily good 
business person. Mm-hmm. You have to be an extraordinarily good speaker. But the third, which I rank highest, is you have to be an extraordinarily good salesperson. Like, did you hear that? There was like, there was a collective groan. Yeah, I know. <sighs> and I say to the people that come to me for coaching, if you groan at sales and you can't do it, don't want to do it, I don't know that you will ever be amazing on stage. See, deep down, I think all speakers, they don't necessarily say this, but deep mm-hmm. down they're like, can I just get someone to sell me so right. all I can do is focus on what I do best, which is to be on the platform. And you're saying BS. I'm the one who sells me. And I honestly believe that speakers who avoid sales say they're not good at sales, they don't want to do sales, they want to hire someone else, they're, they're missing a huge, huge piece of their potential. And, and I'll tell you why, because I see that as part of the presentation. And I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, McDonald's called. And oh my goodness, I'd love to work with McDonald's. And what, what Teresa does is she'll always say, I think Connie has the date open. She always says that because I always want some leeway as to looking at the date. Is it a client I want? Um, she gets the budget from them. And then she says, I'll have her call you back. So that's what she does. I'm, I'm the salesperson. And so I think about it a lot because this is the beginning of my presentation. I, I need to start customizing for McDonald's the moment I talk to them on the phone. So I go online, I look about them, I think about it. But what I'm really looking for is that connection between me and McDonald's. If I can't find a personal connection on the phone with the event planner, then I'm not going to be able to find it on the stage. So now's where I begin to write the speech. And so I called that late afternoon. Mm-hmm. I tried to call back, but I don't call right back because I need a lot of time to think about. This is mm-hmm. like the first date. This is the interview. This is the most important beginning of my presentation. And so when we call back, I listened. I took some notes. And then I said to her, you know, I, I really want to tell you how much it would mean to me to speak to McDonald's. And I want to tell you why. In 1958, the very first McDonald's opened up in the south side of Chicago, and that's where we lived. My dad was a traveling salesman, and he used to stop and bring this white bag, and hamburgers were 15 cents, and french fries were a dime, and it was just amazing. And I said, and then when I went to high school, we'd all go to McDonald's. That was our hangout place. There was no place like that. And we would go and sit out. In fact, the first boy that asked me to go steady asked me right in the parking lot of the McDonald's on Washington Avenue. And I said, then when my kids were growing up, that's when you started drive-in through, drive-throughs. And I remember when you had your first green, you know, shake on on St. Patrick's Day. And I drove the girls through in their pajamas, and they've never forgotten that. And then I told a couple other stories, and I ended with, and even now, when I drive to the airport, and I says, and I'm so glad you have vanilla lattes because you've blown Starbucks out of the water. I drive through McDonald's still today at like 6 a.m. before I catch that seven o'clock flight, and I said, do you understand that your company has been with me? for 50 years. This is the part that they said, we want a date now. And they said, (laughs) we want you, we want you. That's a presentation. And that's what I don't get when speakers say, well, I have someone that does my sales. I go, but who could have told that story? I mean, I'm the one that's going to have to be on stage and connect with this company, this product. There's going to have to be some connection there where they know that for me, what they do is so amazing, so valuable, so, and and so I think speakers miss it. You know, they have someone else outsourced. They've delegated their sales. They've delegated this. They've delegated that, and they want to just be able to get on a plane and get on stage. But to me, that's the connection. And plus, I've already written part. She's got to hear me talk. Sure. She knows how I'm going to sound on stage. It's like a little 
mini demo, you know, and I have a demo tape, but it's generic. It's, I can't put the McDonald's store on a demo tape. You know, Walmart calls and, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what can I say on this call to Walmart? And then all of a sudden it hits me. And so I call him back and I said, you know, I can't tell you how much I want to speak. I said, my dad thought your store was the greatest store in the world. And I said, I would give him shirts and ties for Christmas, but all he wanted from me every Christmas was I was the one that gave him a $100 Walmart gift card. And I said, and after he died, we're going through his clothes, and I find in one of his jackets this Walmart gift card. So I take it to Walmart, and there's $18 left on it. So I'm standing there thinking, you know, what do I do with $18? And this was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So I went and picked up my pictures, because that's what you did seven years ago. And there was a picture of my dad and I about two weeks before he died. And so I just went over and bought an $18 frame from Walmart. And I said... The picture of my dad and I is in your frame, and it's right here, right here next to my computer. I see it every day. And I said, you were his store of choice. Sales is, it is who a speaker is. I don't know how you separate that. And if I can't figure out some way to connect to them at such a deeper level, not the seven keys and the six steps, and here's my PowerPoint, and I take my jacket off when I reach the seventh sentence, and I change my mic to my right hand, all the coaching. If, if, there isn't, if they don't believe at some point that you so understand them and what they do and what they're fearful of and what they're frightened of and how important they are, um, then I don't think you should be in this business. And I don't understand how people delegate sales. My client has a right to know me and who I am from the moment the relationship starts. Woohoo! All right, now we're talking about platform techniques. And with us in the VOE studios here, we have David Glickman, CSP. Now, for those of you who don't know David, David specializes in custom corporate Comedy. Do I have that right? You have that that perfectly correct, Brian. That's right. I asked him how did how did he want me to introduce him. He said handsome. So uh, <laughs> I couldn't do that. So we're going to be covering three different techniques that uh, David that you use and that others can use to incorporate humor or at least cleverness into the audience, so that you're going to get a reaction uh, from them. But it's all about them. That, that is correct. Uh, I've, I've really based my whole career on customization, kind of like you do, Brian. We, we both found how well customizing works with connecting with an audience. And uh, these three techniques we're going to do today really come out of the research process. Uh, the one we're going to start off with I call the parallels technique. Parallels technique. What is the parallels technique? When I'm doing my R&D process, my research and development process, my, my team, which is me, goes in and we try to find things that are relevant to this particular client. They have proprietary software, if they have programs, if they have catchphrases, whatever it might be that is specific to them. I think you've heard me use the phrase before, the more specific the humor, the more terrific the humor. We're looking for very specific things. This particular client, Brian, what they do is sell software. They manufacture software primarily for the healthcare industry, but for other industries too. And what I did was take the names of three of their software products. They they have Mm -hmm. maybe 10 or 12. I took three of them, and in the parallels technique, I then find parallels between their industry 
and my industry, the speaking industry. What we're going to hear on this clip, they had three particular software products. One was called Report Track, one was called CPMS, which stood for Comparative Performance Measurement System, and then they had one called Seeker. 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 What I did was I found a way to say, oh, they develop software specifically for me that's for my business. So it's kind of a parallel situation. A parallel situation. Hence the name of the technique. Hence the name of the technique. All right, let's roll tape, as they used to say. Actually, in addition to the shirt, I am getting some customized software that Midas Plus developed exclusively for me. I am so excited about this. Um, one of the programs is Midas Plus Joke Track. Midas Plus Joke Track keeps track of all my jokes, which ones worked, which ones didn't. Those go to a joke error queue. CPMS is called Comedy Performance Measure System. Uh, this measures how I did in relation to 300 other comedians performing at symposiums this morning. Uh, so I think I'm probably doing better than most of them. Um, oh, no, no, please. Well, we heard how the audience reacted to that because it was about their software and the names, and the names are driven into their heads. Uh, when they heard new ways to say those names, they found that funny. And then, as you heard, I went off and continued on a riff about their senior vice president not knowing that the new products had been developed for me. And it just got funnier. I mean, you heard, the laughs got mm -hmm. funnier and funnier. Th those, those were not canned laughter. That was real. <laughs> All right, so that's technique number one, the parallels technique. What's the second platform technique? Second one we're going to talk about today is called the acronym technique. This is where you take a word that is not an acronym, but you turn it into an acronym. Uh, in this case, uh, the company I happened to be speaking to was called Concord, and Concord is a name. It's not an acronym. Now, they happen to have come up with their own acronym for it, as many companies do. What this technique calls for is you, as the speaker, creating a funny word sentence out of the word that is not an acronym to begin with. Uh, and just so your listeners understand, Concord is an apartment management company. They manage thousands and thousands of apartment units around the United States. So these were all their upper management, and now you'll hear what I did with Concord. I was actually looking through your employee handbook a little bit. One, one thing I found interesting, you know, there's the, uh, the, the acronym in here. You know, the, you don't have to memorize it, but, you know, every letter in Concord stands for something. You see customer service, enhancing resident, optimizing economic performance, and national presence, see consistent, you know. You really, most of you have a small percentage of residents who can be a real pain, you know. 
maybe you should change the Concord acronym to C-O-N-C-O-R-D, comprehending our nearly constant obnoxious residence demands. So that would be, you know. Just, just a thought, just a thought, you know. Be your little secret. Now, th- that was great. So, so David, I'm, I'm curious that, I mean, obviously you did it with a very humorous way, but you could also do it with a medium humorous way if you were a content speaker and have some of the words be kind of hinting towards where your content's going. Exactly. It doesn't have to be funny. You don't... Or you purely don't, funny. Right. You don't want to be trite with it. I mean, there should be, as you alluded to, some, some meat to it, perhaps. It, it, it needs to be relevant. There has to be a reason you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it for humor. Mm-hmm. But so, someone from uh, VOE land, they could do it both for humor, but it also points in a direction of where they're going to be taking the audience. Yes, yes, exactly. All right. All right. That was the acronym technique. And bring us home. What is the third technique, David? This one uh, happens to also be from that same client. This was that Concord Management Group. This technique is where you use the client's materials, resource materials. Any good speaker should be asking the client for every piece of relevant material that they have. Now, luckily today, most of it we find on the internet. Back in the old days, we used to have them mail us hard copies. Employee manual, annual report, now it's all online. Most of it's online. In, In this particular technique, I happen to compare their employee manual with their resident manual. It would be like comparing an employee manual with a customer manual of of, uh, something like that. And really, Brian, all I did was make some observations about the material. Many times, you don't have to find or create something new. You can just read something in a very straight voice, and it's funny hearing it out loud. People usually haven't heard this stuff out loud. Even sometimes taking a mission statement or a vision statement, in most companies and associations there there is fodder for humor in just the basic materials that they have available uh, on their website all right now i'm really curious so let's take a listen this one i'm quoting verbatim quoting verbatim it's about tattoos it says offensive or inappropriate tattoos such as nudes swastikas satanic symbols must not be visible while at work which begs the question, what kind of people are you hiring? <laughs> you, need, you need an assessment that's, you know, a little bit bigger than what we heard at, uh, before lunch here. Now, real curious, the employee, let me show you. The handbook for residents, the white one here with all the rules and regulations, is 17 pages. The handbook for employees, doesn't say team members like it's supposed to, it says employees. <laughs> says employee. It doesn't say team member. Residents one is 17 pages. The employees one is 78 pages with rules you have to follow. And, and Leah's out there. Where is Leah? And Leah's going, but it's a different font. It's a different size font. And I checked. No, they are both 12 point font. They are both 12 point font. That means by my calculations, on any given day, a person is five times more likely to be fired from Concord than evicted from Concord. (laughs) 
what I'm hearing you say is that the technique is re-reveal content that they have that they haven't really listened to or they haven't listened out loud. Exactly. There's a big difference between reading something and hearing something. Steve Allen used to have a very funny bit he did where he would read letters to the editor. Letters to the editor are things we read. We don't hear them. We read them. And he would read them out loud and put this emphasis. He would put the emotion into them that the writer probably was thinking or feeling as he or she wrote the letter. And the bit was great. I see kind of a parallel with that in in this. You're taking something that people have not really heard before, and you're just framing it differently. You're, you're, You're presenting it differently. Now, again, I find humorous observations, as you heard in the clip, I found the difference between the employee manual and the resident manual. And that is where the humor fell. But it doesn't have to be that. It can simply be just looking at the material, holding it in your hand if it is a hard copy, or print out something from the the website. And you even, there's something about, and I'm gonna do this in front of your microphone here, taking a piece of paper and saying, I read it right, right here, it says it right here. And there's something about that that gets a laugh. Just having paper and holding it up, the, the tactile sound of hitting paper is funny. And you get to read it. You don't even have to memorize it. <laughs> right. And, and it sucks up time. Right. What could be better than that? All right, here we are with a special edition of The Journey, because this is going to be a fast journey here. I am with Vernice Fly Girl Armor. She is America's first African-American female combat pilot, which is a cool story in and of itself. But she, in 2007, made the transition from being a marine pilot to being first kind of a motivational speaker, business leader, you could call her an author. She's now starting to embrace the label of emerging world leader. That will make sense, I'm hoping, in just a couple of minutes here. So, Bernice, tell us your story here. Uh, First, give us your background here. So, how did you become the nation's first African-American female combat pilot? So, when I was in college, um, I got involved in the military with a free trip to Mardi Gras. Believe it or not, free fit the budget as a college freshman. So, you got to the Marines by going to Mardi Gras. (laughs) Yes. Now, that's the story. Uh, And it was actually the Army, ROTC at the time. And during one of our leadership trainings, Mm -hmm. I saw a black woman in a flight suit. Now, I didn't even want to go to the aviation tent. And, you know, I said, black people don't fly. (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. Tuskegee Airmen, Bessie Coleman, Willa Brown. Like I said, access and exposure. But when we went inside the tent and I saw that woman, it was the tangibility of the possibility. I could see her, touch her, talk to her, ask her questions, and it planted a very small seed. No, a strong seed. Now, when I went on to um, become a police officer, I couldn't forget about that woman in the flight suit. And I said, why not? I didn't want to what if my life. I wanted to live every juicy moment, like squeezing the juice out of that navel orange that runs down your arm and off your elbow. It wasn't enough being a beat cop and slamming bad guys to the ground and cuffing them. That wasn't enough juice. And that was my childhood dream, and I loved it. But Mm -hmm. being a combat pilot, like, how cool is that, right? mm -hmm. So I drove cross country, went through flight school and all that kind of stuff, and uh, ended up serving two tours in Iraq. And... uh, 
from those two tours became America's first African American female combat pilot. Now and that it, couldn't have just yeah. like happened, I mean, because I, since I'm slightly older than you, I remember the part. We can't let women in combat because all the guys will try and save them, and that exactly. will unit cohesion. Blah 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 mm-hmm. blah. And uh, obviously, the Iraq War kind of changed a few things, opened a few doors. So how did how did you push against that? I mean, you were the first one, so it wasn't like you could say, "I want to be like her." I mean, right. you had to be the first her. So back in 1993, the combat exclusion laws changed, and in 95, the Marine Corps got their first female aviator, and I was the first black female mm-hmm. aviator for the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. right? And through that opportunity, you know, just wanting to be a combat pilot, who knew a war would come up, you know, mm-hmm. in 2003. So there were other women that were combat pilots at the time, and I just happened to be the first to go across that line in that moment. And... If we back things up to make it relevant for the speaker side of the house, when I was in junior high, I'd go back and visit my elementary school. When I was in high school, I'd go back and visit junior high. When I was a cop, I did career days. When I was in the Marine Corps, a couple units asked me to you know, speak during like Women's History Month or things like that. And I knew that I liked speaking and you know doing things in the community. So I said, you know, motivational speaker, that's pretty cool. I'll always do it as side B. If it ever blows up, I'll do it full time. Mm-hmm. You know, what blows up that you don't put that energy into? So when you say blow up since you're a pilot and you, like, fire hellfire missiles and things like that in the past, when <laughs> right. you say blow up, this is a good blow up, like as an expand exactly. blow up. Not as blow up like most speakers, we think of blow up like crash and burn. Well, right. Now, if it's a building blow, blowing up from a hellfire missile, that's still a good that's thing. That's a good thing. Right, okay. Right. So you're talking about if this blows up in a good way. In a good way. Okay. Absolutely. And uh, I was at a conference and I was a stand-in because a facilitator didn't show up. And I was in you know, my military uniform at the time. I was still in the Marine Corps. And they asked me if I would be the table, quote unquote, captain. I was a captain mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps. So we got a good little joke out of that. But afterwards, uh, some women came up to me and they said, oh, my gosh, we're so inspired. We're all going for our plan A. And, it, and out on the outside, I said, oh, that's great. And on the inside, I said, they're going for their plan A and I'm not even going for mine. And in that moment, I said I was going to go for my plan A. And I turned in my paperwork to resign my commission and work on what I like to call the exit strategy. How was I going to get from where I was to where I wanted to be, which was a successful speaker? So I um, started making some calls, spoke with some people, ended up going to a Les Brown training seminar. Then I met Willie Jolly. I said, can I, can I work your table? Can you mentor me? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing we all do. And he said, I'm going to tell you one thing. You need to go to NSA. I know you probably don't have the money. You probably can't make it. You don't have the time, everything else. That's the one thing. It changed my life. I'm sharing it with you. So which, which year did you first come to like a convention? 2007 in San Diego. 2007 in San Diego. And I didn't your... have the money. I said, I hope it's close. I lived in D.C. That's what MasterCard's for, right? <laughs> I don't even know if I had that. All right. So, okay, so you slipped in there. Okay. I did. I, well, you know, mm-hmm. when it's a priority, you find the money. Period. in the story. Just like that corporation out there, if they want you, they'll find the money. Mm-hmm. All right. So... So you started out, and so what kind of audiences did you go to, and what was your message at the time when you were starting out? So when I first started out, people were just saying, you know, share your story, tell us your story. And my very first gig was going to a consulting firm, and they said, we don't have any money, but we can fly you down first class and put you up in the Ritz-Carlton. I was like, that's just the coolest thing ever. Dude, I am there. Yeah, (laughs) And, And yet they say they don't have any money. Yeah, okay. But but you were young, so that's okay. Okay. Exactly. And you know what? I did a good amount of free speeches. And 
you know, you want to get out there and hone your message and hone your craft. And when I came to that very first NSA conference back in 2007, Willie was totally surprised that, you know, I came out, first of all. And he he introduced me around to everyone, like Willie Jolly, Naomi Rhodey, um, Don Hudson, like so many folks. And they took me under their wing. And I remember sitting in the lobby with W. Mitchell and he said, are you speaking in your flight suit? Do you have an introduction video? Do you have the introduction written out so they don't mess it up? Do you have this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. And the key I learned from that, well, which was reinforced, is don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel. There's so much knowledge and amazing guidance in the halls of NSA. You don't have to go it alone. There are so many people that will help. It's amazing. Cool. So so your first message was kind of like the exciting, dramatic telling of your story. Right. Kind of, it was about who you were. And, it, and so at a certain point, then you shifted that instead of just being about you, where you made it about them. For example, I, I've checked out your fabulous website, and your uh, your kind of current position I know is from zero to breakthrough. Did I have that right? You do. So, what was what was that time when you started shifting from it's exclusively my story to now you're making it a challenge to them? Absolutely, and it comes from that time in 2007 again with W. Mitchell and some of the other folks. And W. Mitchell said, "You need to know three things, and this is all that organizations want to hear: How can you make them money, save them money, or save them time?" Make them money, save them money, save them time. And I kept thinking about that. And when my story went from my story and people saying, oh, it was so inspiring, thank you, to customize for that audience with relevant points, techniques, tactics that they could walk away with for themselves, whether personal or business, that's when the magic really started happening. And speaking of magic, you've been on Oprah. I have. She hugged you? I think we did. And then she rubbed my head and I didn't wash my hair for a month. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Now, was this uh, before you were a speaker or while you were a speaker? It was before. It was back in 2003. So I Mm -hmm. did not get the whole Oprah Midas touch gold thing that if I was a speaker at the time, can you imagine? So like you got the the goldness happened while she still had a show and you were before you were a speaker. So that's okay. All right. So... So now you got your your message right. You start at you know adapting or making it about them. Uh, how how have things accelerated? In other words, what were some of the key decisions or key practices that you adopted that has made your business the hotter thing that it is now than the moderate success it was when you started out? So number one, and I'll throw this out there because people say, oh well, you have a story and you have a title. Like I said, when I first started out, I was speaking for free, just like everybody else, and I would say my fee is 2500 and they wanted me to pay me 500 right? So that battle was still there. You have to build your brand and your story and your message, you know, the relevancy, that's when people really start paying, unless, you know, you are a celebrity on The Apprentice or something mm-hmm. like that. The number one practice, best practice that I used was what I already said, not reinventing the wheel, finding out how, what, person am I looking at as a role model and how did they do it? How did they get there? Number two was execution, being being willing to go out there and do it dirty. Thank God I didn't have any money. Like I so was, what were you saying? Say that again. Going out there and do, being willing to what? Being willing to do it dirty. Okay. That's what I thought you said. To do it dirty. <laughs> okay. And I will confess, I haven't heard that technique. So <laughs> well, It wasn't sh- perfect. Share. Share what that means. It wasn't perfect. It okay. was a little dirty. It was do, a do little, it dirty. You know, okay. All right. I did my own one sheet. I okay. didn't have any money to pay a consultant. So dirty as in, you know, not perfect as opposed to go blue. Okay. Or pretty. Okay. Go pretty. Got it. Go okay. a little ugly. Okay. Go a little ugly. Okay. Got it. 
my very first speaker demo video. This is a little ugly, little you know. Ugly. That I don't even let that thing see the light of day now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was enough to get me started. And I think so many people focus on the money uh, when it's really what is the heart and soul that you're putting out there and just start putting it out there. Marketing was my biggest nemesis, I think. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to know, how can I market? How can I market? Postcards, this, that. And people kept telling me, your best marketing is your last gig on stage. Your best marketing is your last gig on stage. I said, well, I know, but tell me about postcards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but sure enough, my best marketing was my last gig on stage. So the first couple of years, I really did extensive uh, work working with coaches and a, a particular speech workshop that really gave me the boost. And I saw transformational um, time for me when I worked on that those platform skills. So the best thing that sold yourself was perfecting your craft. Absolutely, which is why I don't ever miss an NSA. All right, all right. So uh, last question here, Fly Girl, which you know I love that I love that positioning. Uh, as you're now, and there's what are you focusing on now? What's the what's the next thing for you that's going to propel you to a new level? As you kind of go towards this emerging world leader, what's what's that about? What, what's that ambition there? So I was uh, speaking for the Girl Scouts Conference uh, this last summer, and the only panel I had an opportunity to go to that I wanted to make sure I went to was the philanthropy panel, because I believe giving back is just so important. And four women were on the panel, and one woman, they were all billionaires. One woman started to talk, and she said, well, you know, a bunch of us world leaders were sitting around talking about the world economy and what can we do? And I said, er, I didn't hear anything she said after that. And I turned to the person next to me, and I said, did you hear what she just said? World leaders? And I said, how many kids growing up say they want to be a world leader? And in that moment, I said, I want to be a world leader when I grow up. Not necessarily from a monetary standpoint, but how can I be a leader in my global community? Because that's what we are as speakers and authors and, you know, everything that we put out here in the world to help transform and shape people's mentalities to be better or more or bring their true gifts to the world. So how could I be a global community leader in that aspect. So uh, growing my business, speaking, you know, definitely the internet and, you know, products that people can download or events that they can come to, but just the full aspect of how can we give as much as we are on a global scale. Well, we first heard from you back in 2007, so that was five years to now. So five years now, let's check in and see how great of a global leader you are then. All right, I look forward to it. Cleared hot. As NSA president, I've been privileged to travel to four international speaking conferences so far in Germany, Great Britain, Canada, and France. I'm still amazed by the potential that exists for an explosion of professional speaking in parts of the globe currently underexposed or completely unexposed to date. NSA has had, is having, and will continue to have a huge impact in supporting the proliferation of professional speaking around the world. When I was in France, I attended a great conference orchestrated by French Professional Speakers Association President Pascal Pelly. I also spent time at the home of Christine Morlay, who will be the first French representative to receive her CSP this summer at the NSA convention. Compared to the U.S., speaking isn't nearly as mature in the French market, where 
Keynotes are largely the domain of professors and politicians. I initiated a dialogue with our French colleagues and helped them discover that professional speakers aren't just keynoters. They were surprised with the statistic that only 25% of our NSA members in the U.S. identify themselves as keynoters. We spent time reframing professional speaking as keynoting, training, facilitating, coaching, emceeing, and consulting, anything that uses the spoken word to present content to an audience for a fee. In my travels to our sister associations within the Global Speakers Federation, or GSF, I've seen firsthand the enthusiasm of our international colleagues. They are excited to grow the profession, and many are hearing for the first time the story of our founder, Cavett Robert, and his message about creating a bigger pie instead of fighting over the pieces. It's this giving, sharing spirit of NSA that distinguishes it from other professional associations. As a reminder, if you are a member of NSA, you are automatically a member of the Global Speakers Federation and are part of this global community of speakers. You have an opportunity to participate in the GSF events and websites, so make sure you're listed at globalspeakers.net. The GSF provides great support for strong ethics around the world. I'd like to close with an invitation to all our international friends to attend the National Speakers Association Convention this summer in Indianapolis. Come and discover everything you need to know to create a bigger global pie and spread the influence of professional speakers around the globe. Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, communication, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is pricing. Well, actually, how we depict our pricing. A trend I've noticed is that upper-end restaurants are eliminating the dollar sign from their menus. So a nine-buck appetizer isn't written as dollar sign numeral nine, it's just the numeral nine. I figured that practice was based on some secret neuroscience pricing experiment. Turns out, it was. In 2009, Cornell University's hospitality department did a study and discovered that diners on average spend 8% more when the dollar sign is absent from a price. Apparently, the dollar sign symbol and even the word spelled out dollar reminds people of the cost. So about a year ago, I decided to try it. In every single one of my proposals, I listed my fees in terms of a numeral and then a K to represent a thousand. For example, if my fee was $5,000, I would write it as 5K, just like a classy restaurant. And the results were exactly like the Cornell report. I have had less pricing pushback and more easily negotiated agreements on higher fees since doing that. Is that the sole reason? I don't know. But what could it hurt to try? Numerals and the letter K. Works for me, really. Well, that's it for this month. Let's keep the conversation going on VOE topics by commenting on our Facebook posts. And we'll talk again 
in July. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.